Hello, you're listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the burn unit at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Today I want to talk about potassium uh, as it seems to be a very common um, problem uh, that we have to take care of in basically all kinds of ICU patients, surgical, medical, trauma, burn, uh, cardiac surgical patients. And it, it's a common problem that occurs not only in intensive care units, but certainly outside of intensive care units. The vast majority, 98% of all of the body's potassium, is actually found inside the cell. Uh, it is the most abundant intracellular cation. And it's the major effect, uh, it's the major factor affecting the uh, osmolality uh, inside the cell. Potassium clearly has a role in a lot of very important functions, such as muscle contractions, uh, uh, heart contractions, nerve conduction of uh, impulses, uh, and uh, the action potentials are uh, really dependent as well as these muscle contractions as the ratio between the extracellular potassium and the intracellular potassium. In the body, the vast majority of uh, intracellular potassium is found inside the muscle cells. The total potassium in a 70 kilogram individual is about 3,500 milliequivalents. Often when there's an, actually an alteration in a serum potassium concentration, that may not actually represent a decrease in, in total body potassium. It may represent a movement of potassium from a um, extracellular uh, back into the cells. But when there is a true alteration uh, in extracellular potassium measured by a decrease or an increase uh, measurement of the serum potassium, a, a change of serum potassium of one milliequivalent indicates a change in total body potassium of roughly 100 to 200 milliequivalents of potassium. And this is an important number to keep in mind that when you have somebody who has very low levels of potassium and... Um, they don't have a condition of alkalosis or acidosis. They don't have anything like pseudohyponatremia, and they're truly potassium depleted. That 100 to 200 milliequivalents potassium per one milliequivalent um, 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 concentration that gets reported represents a very large amount of potassium that needs to be replaced, uh, which should determine how you're going to replace potassiums. And all too often, people will do a 40 uh, milliequivalent potassium replacement, get a lab, lab gets drawn, goes to the lab, comes back an hour or two later, and, and lo and behold, it's not enough potassium uh, to replace it. And people will act surprised, and you do this exercise um, uh, back and forth for a period of days. Daily intake of potassium averages between 50 and 150 milliequivalents daily. This is balanced by a GI uh, loss of about 10% and the rest through uh, the kidney. If for some reason uh, the body takes in uh, more than, say, 150 milliequivalents of potassium a day, about half of that is excreted through the kidneys within a few hours. Most of the rest taken into the cells to prevent a significant rise in the potassium level. And this movement of potassium, what I call uh, sh uh, the shifting or hiding of potassium intracellular, is something that's really important um, also in our treatment of uh, um, uh, conditions of such as hypokalemia or hyperkalemia. Now, if increased intake continues, then the regulatory mechanisms the body has to try to uh, prevent uh, significant changes of potassium um, will result in increased loss of the, the potassium through the kidneys. Potassium absorption from the GI tract will also fall, leading to a reduction of potassium remaining in the body. 
how potassium uh, ordinarily gets into the body and handled by the body uh, to me is somewhat interesting. Uh, potassium is really regulated by two processes. First, oral intake of potassium quickly enters the portal circulation. Uh, this stimulates the release of insulin by the pancreas. Insulin then facilitates the influx of potassium into the cells. And keep in mind, potassium lives in the cells. That's the, where you really want the potassium to be. The second effect is uh, in response to increased circulating levels of potassium. Now, when there's elevated levels of uh, circulating potassium, this causes the kidney to release renin. Renin leads to hepatic activation of angiotensin 1, which is converted into the lungs to angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 stimulates the secretion of aldosterone from the uh, adrenal zona glomerulosa, and the aldosterone acts on the renal cortical collecting ducts to excrete potassium and retain sodium. Now, to get to the reason why uh, I chose this particular topic for a podcast is the, the problem of hyperkalemia. And I see hyperkalemia uh, in uh, intensive care patients with some regularity, particularly in the kind of patients I take care of in burn units where patients have massive amounts of soft tissue destruction. Now, we've already said that the vast majority of potassium lives inside muscle uh, tissue. And in a burn patient particularly, people who have very, very deep uh, burns of the extremities often will see destruction of not only the skin and underlying subcutaneous fat, but also destruction of underlying muscle. And a lot of times when these patients arrive to us, you put a Foley catheter and you see a dark pigmented urine, and this represents myoglobinuria. Um, that when, when you see that, you, you know that the myoglobin comes from the destruction of muscle tissue. You could also see this in conditions of soft, massive soft tissue destruction uh, and extremity trauma as well. Now, if you see the myoglobin in the urine, you know that it came from inside the muscle cell. And I've already told you that the vast majority of the body lives inside the muscle cell. And it would be a reasonable conclusion to make that this patient likely has an elevated potassium. Now, this is relevant when we go think about uh, a patient who comes in who has, say, uh, very deep burns, third and maybe fourth degree burns of both lower legs, and somebody goes to uh, obtain airway control. Now, it is a well-established um, fact that um, you don't want to use succinylcholine in burn patients, and it has been, uh, and the reason for that is, is that um, patients who have had a, a burn will often upregulate their acetylcholine receptors all the way up and down the myofibril. Now, this does not occur typically within the first 24 hours. So, if one would argue, well, it's safe to use succinylcholine in the first 24 hours, from that physiological standpoint, they would have sure footing to make that argument. But if a patient comes in, they've got deep burns of their lower extremities and they show uh, obvious myoglobin in their urine and you're worried about myoglobinuria or, or deep soft tissue destruction and a patient may need fasciotomies, you would have to maintain a reasonably high index of suspicion that they've also have elevated levels of serum potassium from that muscle destruction. Now, hyperkalemia is defined as a potassium level greater than five and a half. It's found about one to 10% of hospitalized patients. So again, this is a reasonably common problem. I see it a lot in burn patients. If you took care of a lot of trauma patients, you would see it pretty frequently. Again, if you're in a medical unit, you've seen a lot of patients with renal failure. Again, this is another common problem. In the simplest terms, hyperkalemia occurs when the kidney cannot properly excrete potassium and or when there is a problem in the movement of potassium from the cells 
into the circulation or from the circulation into the cells. So let me break that down again for you. You can have some of your regulatory mechanisms for controlling your potassium or you can pee your potassium out. Uh, we know that. We know that's why drugs such as Lasix, when you give somebody a diuretic like Lasix or furosemide, um, that we typically have to follow the potassium and make sure that they don't get hypokalemic or low potassium. The other element is the movement of potassium from outside the cell, inside the cell. And it's a shifting back and forth. Uh, that's really important to keep in mind. Renal excretion of potassium can be very effective. And, and the, um, the kidneys can excrete about 300 milliequivalents of potassium a day. And therefore, a significant increase of intake will rarely result in hyperkalemia because the kidneys will just pee it out when the patient has normal renal function. That's We can't always count that our patients will have normal renal function, however. There's a long laundry list of things that uh, will cause impaired renal excretion of potassium. Um, and the obvious is renal insufficiency or acute kidney injury. Uh, mineral corticoid deficiency uh, seems reasonably obvious. Addison's disease, uh, a type 4 renal tubular acidosis will also cause it. Hyporenic hypoaldosteronism. Uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, problem um, seen commonly in children. Systemic lupus, not I shouldn't say commonly. It's I know, I've seen it mostly in children. Systemic uh, lupus erythematosus. Medications uh, that will result in uh, renal insufficiency more, getting more common uh, in our intensive care units, particularly with this pan-resistant or multiple drug-resistant acinetobacter has required us to use uh, colimycin more frequently. Uh, NSAID drugs will typically do it. Cyclosporin for those of you taking care of transplant patients. Uh, certain uh, antifungals, particularly the azoles. Fluoride toxicity, DIG toxicity. Um, herbal supplements. Uh, herbal supplements seem to be a more of a um, common problem, and therefore it's occurring more and more on uh, exams we're seeing it. Uh, penicillin G uh, potassium, heparin uh, will impair renal excretion of potassium as well as packed red blood cells. Um, some of the things that will cause potassium to shift from cells, uh, metabolic acidosis, which we've already mentioned, rhabdomyolysis uh, from trauma or burns or anything that causes massive tissue destruction, insulin resistance or insulin deficiency, um, tumor lysis syndrome, I saw that on, a, on my critical care board uh, recertification exam. Um, uh, acute intravascular hemolysis, uh, pretty typical. Um, uh, Medication-induced, uh, things such as beta blockers, amino acids, DIG toxicity. Uh, succinylcholine. Now, succinylcholine administration will typically result in a transient rise of potassium, about 0.5 milliequivalents per liter. Now, patients with significant tissue damage, as I've already mentioned, such as crush injuries, burns, um, patients who have recent denervation injuries, uh, spinal cord injuries, and some cases of abdominal sepsis are more significant to a rise of potassium. The resulting level could cause potentially life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias up to and including ventricular fibrillation. Uh, and it's contraindicated in patients in those above-mentioned um, uh, conditions. Now, there's also pseudohyperkalemia. Um, which is pretty obvious, and, and that's a falsely elevated potassium level. And this is typically occurs in with hemolysis and release of potassium from the cells. It may also occur with an elevated platelet count. When the platelet counts get above a million, you could see a pseudo-hyperkalemia, pseudo as potassium can be released from platelets during clotting. 
Now, to ascertain if the high potassium is false, the level can be rechecked, and to be sure, a, uh, a plasma potassium levels can be checked against the serum levels as well. So those are some of the things that will result in your potassium level being elevated. Now, what are the signs and symptoms that you'll see with hyperkalemia? Um, uh, the signs and symptoms really affect the potassium on cellular depolarization. Some of the general symptoms you'll see are, are general fatigue, muscle weakness, uh, even up to including flaccid paralysis, paresthesias, um, signs of uh, cardiac excitability are the commonest presenting symptoms. You know, when you go to examine the patient uh, with hyperkalemia, it's also suggestive of renal failure. You'll see peripheral edema, weight gain, neurological findings could include diminished deep tendon reflexes, muscle weakness, signs of tissue damage, uh, as we've already keep going over, uh, burns, extremity trauma, um, cardiac findings of extrasystoles or, or bradyarrhythmias or bradycardia. Many ICU patients are predisposed to the cardiac effects of hyperkalemia, uh, secondary to comorbid conditions, and uh, they could have serious consequences at lower levels uh, than uh, otherwise healthy patients. And mortality has been noted as high as 67% in patients who have severe hyperkalemia. Often, um, particularly in uh, the ICU setting, the EKG is often the first thing that kind of tips us off if, if we're not just running routine labs. And these include, um, you'll see these EKG changes when the potassium begins to exceed 5.5 milliequivalents per liter. And typically the most classic is, is the uh, peak T waves. You could also see some ST segment depression as well as shortening of the QT interval. Um, when the potassium gets uh, greater than about 6.5, you see a, a, the appearance of a bundle branch blocks as well as a widened QRS complex, increased PR interval, and the P waves will start having a, a drop or a decrease in the amplitude. If the potassium continues to rise, the P waves can actually disappear. The P waves will uh, actually disappear, and you'll see widening of the QRS uh, complex so eventually uh, begins to represent a sine wave. Uh, you can also uh, heart block, ventricular fibrillations, asystole. Um, these findings may all occur as potassium levels rise or a sudden increased potassium could almost immediately result in significant life-threatening arrhythmias. So it's just not a, a, a slow increased potassium that will result in these concentrations. But if a patient had a, a sudden uh, spike in their potassium, uh, you'll see uh, similar types of uh, prompt uh, um, development of arrhythmias. Now, treatment is uh, quick treatment is required to prevent morbidity and death from uh, significant hyperkalemia. And the treatment is actually, uh, in my opinion, kind of interesting in that we're really trying to do three things when we approach the treatment of hyperkalemia. We have the heart, which is, as we've mentioned, all these bad things can happen to the heart and result in life-threatening arrhythmias. That's one problem. The other problem, or, or the other objective of our treatment, is we said that the majority of the potassium lives inside the cells. And we said that some of the things that we do to regulate our potassium besides peeing it out is we shift potassium from outside inside the cells where it actually lives. So, um, and the third thing, uh, the third objective of our hyperkalemia treatment is trying to get potassium out of the body. So those are our three really approaches or our prongs of uh, treatment of hyperkalemia in the ICU. Protect the heart or stabilize the heart. Shifts, shift potassium into the cells where it actually belongs and try to get the extra potassium out of the body.
So let's look at our treatment for hyperkalemia in uh, a little bit more detail. As I said, that the first thing we want to do is, is try to provide some safety for these life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias. And the first thing we do is provide calcium. The calcium has no effect on the serum potassium level. Its sole purpose is to stabilize the heart and prevent it from deteriorating into a uh, malignant arrhythmia. Um, the onset of action for the calcium is about one to three minutes and the duration of action is about 30 to 60 minutes. And I said what it does is it stabilizes the membrane of the myocardium. Calcium is typically given as a 10% solution of calcium gluconate. Now, calcium chloride can also be given. Calcium chloride has more biologically available calcium, but should be given uh, through central access because it's, it's reasonably irritating uh, to the veins. Now, care needs to be uh, used when treating a patient who's also receiving DIG, uh, as uh, IV calcium may lead to a hypokalemic arrhythmia. Uh, calcium stabilizes the membrane but does not change the potassium level and that's a real important thing to be mindful of. Of our three approaches of hyperkalemic, uh, of the hyperkalemic patient, all we're doing with our calcium is stabilizing the heart and trying to prevent it from going into a malignant arrhythmia. Now the next arm of our treatment we said is the redistribution of potassium in the body. Basically pushing the potassium into the cells uh, and by doing so lowering our serum potassium level and the most common way this is done is by the administration of glucose and insulin it has an onset of about 15 minutes and it'll last at about probably about less than five hours and what it does is like i said it pushes the potassium uh, into the cell typically this is given by giving uh, iv insulin it's one of the few cases where you actually give iv insulin you give five to ten units uh, of insulin along with about 50 cc's of D50 and this redistributes the potassium into the cells. It could result in hypoglycemia therefore uh, it's often followed by the administration of D10W as well as, as a form of infusion. So you know, give your 10 units of R, give an amp of D50 and uh, since the 10 units of R could result in some hypoglycemia you can maybe consider the start of a a infusion of D10W. Now the, the intravenous half-life of potassium is really measured in minutes um, so you're not going to have too much of a lingering effect as far as that IV insulin goes and this is why we typically don't um, use IV insulin as a bolus form uh, as a one-time one time a deal uh, in uh, the management of uh, blood sugars in the ICU. That's why you usually see IV insulin as an infusion not as one-time bolus as we're doing here. So that's pushing the potassium into the cell. Now there are some other things that can be used to uh, help redistribute it, uh, redistribute the potassium. One of my favorites is the nebulized albuterol. Um, albuterol is a beta agonist. So albuterol, uh, say 10 to 20 milligrams uh, by nebulization over 10 minutes can result in redistribution of potassium into the cells, uh, resulting in decrease in serum potassium about 0.5 to 1.5 milliequivalents per liter and I think this is a treatment for hyperkalemia that often gets overlooked. Um, most studies have reported no adverse effects using beta agonist therapy for hyperkalemia. Side effects include tremor, nervousness, palpitations, tachycardia and that would all make sense because I'm giving albuterol is a beta agonist. Um, Second dose of albuterol significantly uh, increases transcellular shift. Uh, large doses of pseudoephedrine will also decrease uh, serum potassium. Uh, um, 
terbutaline uh, be given as well. Uh, but uh, the uh, nebulized albuterol, 10 to 20, 10 to 20 milligrams, is perhaps uh, the most uh, uh, commonly used one as well. And in some parts of the world, they'll actually give um, uh, the albuterol uh, intravenously. Um, I don't have any first-hand experience with that, but I'm sure some of our, our listeners have. Uh, aminophilin, uh, a drug that we used to use a lot of in the past, has an onset of about 30 to 60 minutes. So this is a little bit longer, a duration of action about 2 to 6 hours. And what aminophilin is doing is it's part of that redistribution type of therapy. And it's it does lower the potassium, but not equal to the reduction as we see in insulin and glucose. And also you can see that you know, the insulin and glucose works pretty quickly within 15 minutes, um, but the aminophilin is going to take about 30 to 60 minutes. Plus, aminophilin is not readily available in mo most ICUs where insulin and, and D50 are, are readily available. Then we get into, uh, well, let me comment about the bicarbonate therapy. Um, uh, there, people can use a bicarbonate as well, and the idea behind the bicarbonate is that it redistributes. Uh, it's... Uh, it's felt that the onset of action is within minutes. Uh, it's really unknown how long that the bicarbonate will be beneficial for. The bicarbonate is probably most beneficial uh, when the patient is in renal failure or uh, they have a condition of acidemia. And typically, we'll, we'll go ahead and give one amp a 7.5% of a sodium bicarb, and you can repeat that in, in about an hour and a half. But again, if the patient isn't really experiencing uh, a condition of acidemia, it, it's probably not going to give you a whole lot of bang for your buck. So we've talked about the cardiac stabilization, we've talked about the redistribution, and now the third arm of treatment for hyperkalemia is the elimination of the potassium, actually trying to get it out of the body. Uh, loop diuretics uh, are pretty effective in that, um, uh, giving um, um, Something is like a furosemide or Lasix uh, may drop your potassium about one to two hours, um, and like I said, we use that as elimination. It will check. It will affect your serum potassium level. Um, hemodialysis uh, is certainly very effective, but really can't be considered a first-line emergency treatment, um, and it will help eliminate potassium, obviously. But it's something you need to be thinking of is, is that is if we can't get this potassium controlled or the patient's symptomatic or we have worsening potassium, you know, you need to be just thinking about do you need to be consulting with nephrology and is this patient going to be considered a candidate for hemodialysis? Uh, perhaps the most uh, commonly um, way of eliminating uh, excess potassium are the resin potassium binders, typically caxalate. This really seems to be a staple of care, but there are those who are uh, somewhat skeptical about how effective uh, these agents are. So that's an, in summary of, of an approach of how to deal with the patient who has hyperkalemia. Now I'd like to just go briefly over some of the the issues of hypokalemia or low potassium, and that's really when we have potassium of less than 3.5 milliequivalents per uh, liter. Symptoms uh, may not be seen uh, with hypokalemia that's mild, say between 3 and 3.5. Three and Further reductions or drops in the potassium level will result in weakness and, as well as constipation. When you get really low levels of potassium, say uh, between 3 and, and between 
say three uh, mill equivalents per liter and down to two and a half, this can result in, in just frank muscle necrosis. Once your potassium levels get below two, the patient may develop an ascending paralysis, which will even result in some uh, uh, respiratory impairment. Cardiac arrhythmias are really rare unless the patient has an underlying cardiac problem, uh, ischemic heart disease, heart failure, or left ventricular hypertrophy. Hypokalemia can lead to significantly increased arrhythmias in patients who are taking DIG. Um, and that's something that those of us who grew up in uh, where everybody was taking DIG, we were very uh, mindful of what the patient's potassium level was. Now, hypokalemia usually results from abnormal loss, such as renal loss, as we keep talking about. Uh, diuretics, particularly furosemide, will drop the potassium, as well as result of medical, metabolic alkalosis or losses in the stool in a patient who is experiencing diarrhea. Uh, less often, you can see low levels of potassium by redistribution of potassium uh, into the cells. Some of these causes of hypokalemia um, um, are uh, a lot of them are medications, and these include medications such as insulin and beta agonists, and that would make sense because those are two of our treatments to treat hyperkalemia. Uh, theophylline. Uh, almost always low potassium with theophylline toxicity. Caffeine uh, will result in low potassiums. Uh, verapamil, but only in pretty large doses. Thiazide and loop diuretics. Uh, acetazolamide, uh, theophylline toxicity. Uh, aminoglycoside antibiotics, they get potassium loss due to hypomagnesemia. Uh, Amphotericin B. Uh, which will result in uh, hypokalemia, uh, laxatives, as well as licorice. Um, that licorice seems weird, but it seems to show up on exams, and, and I don't know why people like to put silly questions like that on exams, but they do. Some of the conditions associated with hypokalemia, familial hypokalemic periodic paralysis, hyperthyroidism, uh, treatment of severe pernicious anemia, uh, DTs or delirium tremens, metabolic alkalosis, typically most caused by vomiting or NG tube drainage uh, with excessive chloride loss. So you'll have a hypochloremic uh, hypo metabolic alkalosis, something you'd probably typically see in the classic uh, on the surgical exam is the child who's got a pyloric um, uh, stenosis and has been vomiting. You also see that in adults who have been vomiting for a variety of reasons, uh, something as a... Uh, um, like a gastric ulcer uh, that's obstructing the gastric outlet. Genetic abnormalities, type 1 real tubular acidosis. Remember, we had type 4 uh, for hyperkalemia. Um, AML, um, ALL, uh, magnesium depletion, we've already mentioned, as well as diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, the hypokalemia of diabetic ketoacidosis, I would put an asterisk on there because a lot of times as you start bringing down the blood sugar because and you start bringing up the pH, you'll see a redistribution of potassium. Uh, so you need to be very careful of that. And that's probably worth a talk in itself, talking about the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis. And just as a review, remember that number that we talked about earlier when we introduced the whole concept of potassium, that if you're in a 70-kilogram uh, adult, they have a total body potassium of about 3,500 middle equivalents. And therefore, a decrease of your measured serum potassium of one mill equivalent per liter really represents a change in total body potassium of 100 to 200 mill equivalents. 
Uh, so again, be mindful of that as you're replacing potassium. Get a, a number in your mind of what that number is that you're replacing. Now, you never give somebody 200 or 300 milliequivalents of potassium. We do that in much shorter runs, and we'll often uh, do interval checks. Um, but a lot of times, you don't need to be doing 20 recheck, 20 recheck, or even 40 recheck. You may need to do one, or, or you may need to do a couple of runs of potassium replacements prior to checking in these patients who have very low levels of potassium. Um, thank you for listening. You've listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. My website is um, burndoc.com. Um, there's um, access to um, some of our teaching materials as well as access to uh, contact me, leave a message, uh, as well as links um, to our pharmacology book, our pre-hospital pharmacology book, which um, for our publisher should be available in March of this year, 2009. Thank you and have a good evening.